Welcome to Liquid Church Audio. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered live at Liquid Church by Pastor Tim Lucas. For more information and content, or to connect with our worldwide Liquid Church community, log on to liquidchurchonline.com. Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. We are not at war against Islam. I also want to speak tonight directly to Muslims throughout the world. We respect your faith. His teachings are good and peaceful. Our actions today were not aimed against Islam. The faith of hundreds of millions of good, peace-loving people. Islam has a developed doctrine, theology, and law that mandates violence against unbelievers. All right, you came back. I'm shocked. I want to welcome you to our current series on Islam, in which uh, today we're actually exploring the genesis of jihad. Uh, last week, we established the facts about the world's fastest growing religion by contrasting, on one hand, the cross with the Islamic crescent. And what we did is we compared the basic beliefs of both Christianity and Islam and realized, while we share some similarities in terms of ancient roots and characters, there is a vast difference between the two theologically. Uh, one is a religion of works. A good Muslim must follow five pillars that will hopefully earn Allah's acceptance into paradise. Somebody asked that, they said, in Islam, how do you get to heaven? Salvation is, is based on your work. So you, hopefully your good outweighs your bad at the end, and Allah will judge you worthy of getting into heaven. On the other hand, Christianity is not a religion of works, but a relationship of grace, where God actually came down to us in the person of Jesus Christ, and out of his love for humanity, he doesn't actually condemn us, the way our sins deserve, but God actually sends his son Jesus to die on the cross. He pays the penalty himself for our sin, and what's the result? Our debt before God is paid forever, and we receive the promise of eternal life in heaven with God. Not because of what we do, but because of what Christ did. The cross is theologically different than the crescent. Those are the basic facts. But today, I want to address our primal fears that so many people have with radicalized Islam or jihad. I don't think there's another word in the modern lexicon that strikes as much fear in the hearts of Western people as jihad. But what exactly is it? This past Wednesday, I had the chance to sit down with Lazarus Yegnazar, who is president of 222 Ministries to Iran. And here's how he defined jihad. Jihad means to have this... Uh ambition, holy ambition of uh, constant uh, strain towards attaining a goal. So jihad is constant struggle. There is no qualm about it. This is the understanding of Muslim theology. Okay. The whole world has to surrender to Islam. Surrender by force, not surrender by love. Surrender by suicide bombers, surrender by any means possible. Mm. So 
let nobody placate and make it more nicer. Yeah. There is no Muslim, you know, conformist or fundamentalist or secular Muslim. If either one is Muslim or not, it's just right. like either one is a born again Christian or not a Christian. Right. So if you're a true Muslim and you follow the scripture, you have to either be at war to subjugate others, all mm. the infidels, all the non-Muslims, mm. or you have to rejoice because all the world have been already subjugated to Islam. That's what jihad is. It's relentless, it's constant, it's perpetual, and it's at our doorsteps. It's at our doorsteps indeed. 9-11 was the day the reality of jihad jarred a lot of us awake. Do you remember where you were? Uh, the morning of September 11th, I was actually at a Ford dealership getting the tires on my uh, Ford truck rotated. And I remember standing in line with a bunch of other people and we're all huddled in this little waiting room and all of a sudden, all eyes turned to this little TV and we, no one could believe what we were seeing. Everyone was like, is, is this real? Is this live? And everyone went silent and some people covered their mouth. Others couldn't believe their eyes. Mechanics came out of the garage to watch those images of devastation. My wife Colleen was at her office in Manhattan when the towers collapsed. And I remember this flash of panic. Most of us can remember the terror, the, the fear, and the confusion of that day. And standing in that little waiting room, everyone just scrambled to get their cell phone and they started making these frantic calls. And, and, and people were like, who would do such a thing? Why would they do this to us? What, what have we done to provoke this, this horrific attack? And in the days following September 11th, we were suddenly introduced to like this brand new language, name of radical Islamic groups like the Taliban, Al-Qaeda came onto our radar. That was a first for many of us. Suddenly, we were no longer safe. Terror had touched down for the first time in our country's history on our soil. And previously, we thought like suicide attacks or bombings, these were, these were things that happened over there on the other side of the world, somewhere in the Middle East, not in America. And yet those are the images that are seared into our minds forever. The question is, where did it come from? Where did jihad originate? And more importantly, as Christians who value religious freedom, how do we respond to what we see happening in the world around us almost 10 years later? Some of you may be surprised to learn what seems like a modern phenomena actually has its roots in ancient history. A family grudge, in fact, that occurs at the beginning of our holy book, the Bible. And today, I want us to understand the genesis of jihad. In other words, the biblical account that frames so much of the hostility and violence gripping the Middle East today, which has now landed on our doorstep in the West. Now, before we dive in, I just want to warn you against something. Time out. Two huge mistakes you could make as we discuss this critical yet sensitive issue. The first would be to assume that all Muslims are jihadists. That's simply not true. <laughs> Okay, M not all Muslims advocate violence or a hatred for, for Christians and, and for Jews. That's, that's just not true. We talked about that last week. We give you some facts. That's a stereotype born of ignorance. It would be like a Muslim in Indonesia watching the news and saying, see, all Christians want to burn the Quran. All Christians want to bomb abortion clinics. You can't take the worst elements of a group and spotlight them as if they speak for the majority. I understand that sells newspapers. In journalism class, we learned, if it bleeds, it leads. <laughs> you highlight the worst. And militant terrorists have spilled a lot of blood around the world. The images are raw and painful. But I want to challenge you to set aside whatever raw feelings you might have, anger, fear, revulsion, and ask God to help you think critically today. As I noted last week, the truth is the vast majority of Muslims in our world actually live in Asia, not the oil-rich Middle East. And secondly, many of them are simple people. After a lot of the same things we are, a job, education for their kids, security, they don't wake up dreaming about terror or carnage or violent confrontation with the West. 
Every religion has extremists, whether Christian or Jewish or Muslim. And the facts are, only a minority of the world's 1.5 billion Muslims are militant extremists advocating violent jihad. At the same time, we must acknowledge that radical Islamic terror is a growing global threat in our world that must be addressed. It must be looked squarely in the face, unmasked and understood. If we're going to respond in a way that honors both the enemy love of Christ and draws logical boundaries to protect our faith, our freedom and way of life. Because the world is a dangerous place. That is probably the understatement of the century right there. Islamic militants like Osama bin Laden are not going away anytime soon. In fact, here's what he had to say about his fellow jihadists on September 11th. So don't be naive. Although Christ teaches us to love our enemies, pray for those who persecute us, we aren't being asked to settle for some fuzzy version of tolerance and accommodation that ignores very real evil of any ideology that threatens our liberty or freedom. Yeah? On the other hand, don't be ignorant and settle for stereotypes and sound bites you pick up from Glenn Beck. All right? The world is more nuanced than most news reports you'll see today. We have to understand what we're dealing with. Why? So we can differentiate between mainstream beliefs and militant Islam and speak intelligibly, debate articulately, and define boundaries with integrity. So what's the genesis of jihad? Where did this bloodshed we see in the Middle East begin? I want to invite you to open your Bible to Genesis. It's the book of beginnings, easy to find, first one in the Bible, chapter 16. We'll be skipping around that book today to connect the dots of ancient jihad with modern headlines. Now, jihad is a word um, most Westerners, we hadn't heard of a decade ago. It's sometimes called the sixth pillar of Islam, and jihad literally means struggle. And there are two kinds of struggle. There's, there's the inner jihad, or the internal struggle, of the Muslim to submit to Allah, to resist fleshly desires, to obey Allah's laws. That's inner jihad. But then there's also outer jihad. That's the external struggle to defend and advance the Islamic religion and culture. And that's the physical jihad that's embraced by militant Muslims like bin Laden against the West. As we saw last week, fundamentalists interpret the Quran's teaching about jihad quite literally. I think I showed this to you in uh, Surah 9, verse 5. This is kind of the call to carnage. Kill the infidels wherever you find them. Infidels are non-believers, Jews, Christians, people of the book. Arrest them, besiege them, lie in ambush for everywhere for them. Now extremists would interpret that verse as a call to wage war or to, to struggle, to jihad, with the non-Muslim world until Sharia law, that's Islamic law, is established around the entire globe. Again, here's Ayatollah Husseini of Baghdad explaining the concept. Jihad, struggle to fight the infidels until they either convert or are conquered. And the law of Allah, Sharia, is established. That's the goal of radical Muslim extremists. And this is where it gets scary. I just want to call this out. For militant Muslims, a big part of jihad is martyrdom, suicide bombings, terror attacks. Sacrificing one's life in the cause of Allah is considered a great privilege and honor. Now, we look at images like that on the news, and we shake our heads. We don't understand it. 
Because we're like, what would cause someone to send their sons and daughters to death? Where, where does this hostility and this toxic hatred for Israel in America come from? That's what we're going to learn here in Genesis as we trace the history of jihad and realize this modern conflict has ancient roots in the Old Testament scriptures. The book of Genesis is of interest to followers of all three faiths because it contains the story of Ibrahim, or Abraham, you might say. Before he became known as Father Abraham, though, he was simply a man named Abram, living in the Middle East, who had a big problem. In Genesis 16, we're told, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. Before God renamed them Sarah and Abraham, they were Sarai and Abram. In other words, he couldn't have kids. And in the Middle East, having a son to carry on your family's name is a big deal. In that ancient tribal culture, if you died without a son, it meant you had no heir. But Abram was a man of faith, and he cried out to God. So God made him a promise in Genesis 15. Then the word of the Lord came to him, A son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said, So shall your offspring be. And this was an incredible promise. Abram was 76 years old, and God said, Guess what? You're going to be a daddy. All right? In fact, you're going to be a grandpa, and you're going to be a great-grandpa. Your descendants will be as numerous as the stars, like the sand on the beach. And this was an incredible promise that thrilled Abram, but also seemed pretty impossible. Ten years went by. Nothing happened. So Sarah, good Middle Eastern wife that she is, <laughs> took things into her own hands. Sarah had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. So we meet a woman who didn't have a lot of patience. Shocker, I know. Anyone identify with this, okay? <laughs> this transcends culture. In the Middle Eastern world, a married woman who actually couldn't have kids was shamed by her peers and sometimes required to provide a servant who could produce an heir. So Sarah gets the idea to give her servant Hagar as a substitute wife. And this was a common practice in the ancient world. So Abram agreed to what Sarah said. Now here's the deal. Although they were technically acting in line with the custom of the day, Sarah and Abram didn't really believe God would come through, did they? They, they didn't trust his timing, which is a lesson for all of us. <laughs> when you're tempted to take things into your own hand, watch what it gives birth to. Verse 3 in Genesis 16. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarah, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant Hagar, gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived when she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. So all of a sudden, there's tension in this Middle Eastern family, yeah? Their lack of trust in God causes relational conflict. It's Sarah versus Hagar. One is jealous of the other. One feels superior. The result? Then Sarah mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The family breaks up. Hagar actually ran into the, the desert, totally distraught, where she encountered an angel of the Lord who said to her, you are now with child. You shall have a son. You shall name him, what's the name? Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. Ishmael literally means, by the way, God hears. God hears you. And you might think, oh, okay, so this is God coming through. This is the son he promised Abram, partially. But the angel says this, this son will be different. He will, in fact, have a dark destiny. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And catch this, he will live in, what's the word? Hostility toward all his brothers. Call him Ishmael. 
Abraham's first son, a wild donkey of a man. I love that. I could use that for my son. And God says, not just one son, Ishmael will have what? He will have brothers. In other words, there's more on the way. Now flip ahead to chapter 21 of Genesis. See, God eventually makes good on his original promise to Sarah. He says the Lord was gracious to Sarah, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised him. And Abraham gave the name, what is it? Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. Ishmael and Isaac. It took some time. The family was dysfunctional. They lacked faith. But in spite of it all, God doubled down on his promise and gave Abraham two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. The question is, do you think they'll get along? Remember the ancient prophecy, and he will live in what? Hostility toward all his brothers. Folks, this is the ancient birth of the murderous sibling rivalry we see playing out in the modern Middle East. If you connect the dots, most of you have already figured this out by now, Isaac became the forefather of the nation of Israel, while Ishmael is whom modern Arabs claim as their forefather. Where does jihad come from? The toxic hate that fuels the fire in the modern Middle East? This is the genesis of jihad, predicted 3,000 years ago in the Old Testament scriptures. Why such bitterness, such hostility? The answer is in Genesis 25.5, Abraham left everything he owned to who? Isaac. In God's providence, the Jewish people were chosen by God to be blessed. And through Isaac, they received land, possessions, and power, while Ishmael got the scraps. Two battling brothers who, by divine birth, became arch enemies. You know that Isaac, 12 tribes of Israel, but Ishmael had 12 sons or tribes. The Bible says his descendants settled near the border of Egypt and they lived in what? There it is again, hostility towards all their brothers. The prophecy came true. And this is incredible in my mind to trace this ancient pattern between, on one hand, the crescent, on the other, the star of David. The original hostility was between Hagar and Sarah. It played out in their children's lives. Ishmael hates Isaac. Isaac himself had two sons, Jacob and Esau, who were hostile towards each other. And as the dominoes toppled, each generation passed along the virus of hatred to the next one. This is the genesis of jihad, folks. And if you want to understand what's happening today globally, why the Middle East throbs with such violence, Israel versus Palestinians, Jews versus Arabs, you have to go back 3,000 years to a family squabble that became an ancient grudge that gave way to a murderous modern jihad that we see today. It'd be difficult to miss on the news that um, Isaac and Ishmael are still at war, at each other's throats. In the Middle East, the battle has been largely over land, specifically the Holy Land, outlined in Genesis 15. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, to your descendants, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. You probably know the river of Egypt. We're talking about the Nile. But the river Euphrates, you know where that is? Modern-day Iraq. Biblically speaking, if Israel were to occupy the land promised her in Genesis, as you'll see on this map, she would actually control portions of Lebanon, the West Bank of Jordan, Syria, and Saudi Arabia. That's, that's biblically what is 
prophesied here in Genesis. Today, modern Israel is much smaller, right about here, the size of New Jersey, but she dominates the nightly news. Every American president for the past 80 years has attempted to broker peace between Israel and her Arab neighbors, and everyone has failed. In many ways, the hatred between Ishmael and Isaac burns brighter today than ever before. Hamas, Hezbollah, Al-Qaeda, each of these groups denies the right of Israel to exist. That's why they chant death to Israel. Hamas was actually founded in the Gaza Strip in 1987 for the express purpose of eliminating Israel. It's funded actually by Iran and other Arab states, and now it wields political control over the Palestinian people. In other words, Ishmael and Isaac are still at war. They are brothers locked in a bloody battle over their father's land. And Israel is definitely in the bullseye for Islamic terrorists. Think of it this way. You've seen this picture before. If Israel is at the center of the conflict, at the center of Israel is Jerusalem, and at the center of Jerusalem is the Temple Mount. You recognize this, the gleaming gold dome? This is the most hotly contested religious site in the entire world. Now, for those who are under the star of David, okay, this is significant because it's the holiest site in Judaism. It's the site of two temples that were located. But for the Crescent, it's the third holiest site in Islam. It's actually the location of the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Dome of the Rock. This is the spot where Muslims believe Muhammad ascended to heaven with the angel Gabriel. And so in this 35 little acres, it's been controlled by Israel since 1967. But today, Israel and the Palestinian Authority claim sovereignty over the site. So you have Israel and Ishmael and Isaac locked in mortal combat each one with a family claim and a death grip around the other's throats. You're starting to connect the dots here. The struggle between the crescent and the star has very ancient roots. So when you watch CNN tonight or headline news, you are watching a 3,000-year-old prophecy play out before your eyes. Ishmael, you will never be at peace. You will be driven by hostility towards your brother Isaac. Most recently, the president of Iran, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, publicly declared that Israel should be wiped from the face of the map. Taking aim once again at Israel and the United States, Iranian President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad repeated inflammatory comments that he made three years ago, saying Israel would soon disappear. Ahmadinejad first made the remarks in 2005, fueling international outrage and speculation that he was threatening the Jewish state with a nuclear weapon. But while speaking at a ceremony honoring the late founder of Iran's Islamic Republic, Ahmadinejad told an audience that, quote, this origin of corruption will soon be wiped off the Earth's face. Ahmadinejad also called the U.S. a satanic power that, with God's will, would be annihilated. On Tuesday, Ahmadinejad arrived in Rome for a U.N. summit designed to help combat skyrocketing food prices worldwide. His attendance at the meeting was denounced by both Jewish leaders and a host of political and activist groups. You will live in hostility toward all your brothers. Disturbing to modern ears, especially when you consider Iran's pursuit of nuclear weapons. But through the lens of ancient prophecy, this is nothing new. It's incredible to think the ongoing crisis in the Middle East, the source of so much violence and terror and instability in our 21st century world, can be traced to one ancient family who failed to believe that God would keep his promise to them. There's a sober lesson in here about trusting God. Is there? I mean, when we force God's hand prematurely, we try to grab power for ourselves, there are grave consequences. Our impatience gives birth to toxic hate and terror gets passed down 
from generation to generation. Increasingly, the United States is being attacked for its support of Israel. When Israel declared its statehood in 1948, America was the first country to formally validate her existence, and as a result, we've been kind of drawn into this, this global conflict by radical extremists. 9-11 was not the first time that terror touched down in America. For us, it began with the Iranian hostage crisis in 1979. Some of you are old enough to remember that. The next attack was when Hezbollah detonated a truck bomb in U.S. Marine barracks in Beirut in 1983, killing 241 soldiers. Islamic terror first came to American soil in 1993 when a truck bomb was exploded in the World Trade Center in New York City, a calling card for things to come. And of course, 9-11, that kind of jarred us all in this reality of jihad, this global threat of radical Islamic terror which feeds on hatred for Israel, number one, and the West in general. So militant groups like Hamas, Al-Qaeda, actually they call Israel the little Satan, while America is the great Satan. So this we have, wow, we're going up in the world. <laughs> so this ancient prophecy of Ishmael, he'll live in hostility towards his brothers, is alive and well 3,000 years later. And it's a tragic, tragic legacy. It is a dark destiny as men, women, and most deplorably children now are sucked into the violent vortex of radical Islam. The peak, the pinnacle, the crest, the highest point, the pivot, the summit of Islam is jihad. This is our intention, brothers and sisters, that we want to have children and offer them as soldiers defending Islam, put in their soft, tender heart the zeal of jihad and the love of shahada, the love of martyrdom. Alhamdulillah, Musulmanan, this is what Asbabi Dakralach Pidai, Amalyat, Stadzwanan Zanunatayakra. We have to realize that we're facing a massive clash of values. This six year old sent by the Taliban to suicide bomb a police station. Yes, we want to give children a military education. We want to train them against cruel invaders and infidels. So if we need them, they will join this struggle. I understand this is difficult to watch, but evil must be faced. It's been said the only thing necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. This transcends religion, guys. It transcends denominations or ethnic loyalties. It doesn't matter if you're American or Arab. It doesn't matter if you are Christian or Jew or a Muslim. When children are being taught that the greatest thing they could do in life is strap a bomb around themselves and blow themselves up, something has gone horribly, horribly wrong. And there is no government policy or military action with the power to change the direction of that dark road. Only the gospel, the good news of forgiveness, of enemy love, has the power to do that. The gospel of Christ says that God wants us to treat our enemies like he treated us. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were what? Still sinners. Christ died for us. While we were still sinners means while you and I were still enemies of God. He sent his son to die like a martyr so we could live. Only the gospel is the good news among all world religions that says God is not a hater. He does not condemn. Instead, he dies for the infidel. He looks at those who are against him and he says, Father, forgive them. And they're sin-struck madness. They don't know what they're doing. 
I'm not out to destroy you. I love you. And I'm willing to lose my life so I can save yours. That's the heart of God. He allowed his own son to become a martyr. And it's our only hope for salvation in bringing down the strongholds of radicalized Islam. Enemy love. Spiritual jihad. A willingness to stand up and actually love our enemies and actually desire their salvation as much as our own. In my interview last week with Imam Raouf, who is not a radical, by the way, he is a kind and patient man. He is a friend who actually champions peace and condemns such atrocities. He, um, he explained how suicide is forbidden, actually, in the Quran and mainstream Islam. And I said, well, then how, how, does, how does one justify some, an atrocity like suicide bombings? Again, it's a matter of interpretation. Muslim extremists point to a verse like Surah 9, verse 111. God has brought from the believers their lives in exchange for paradise. Thus, they fight in the cause of God, willing to kill and get killed. This is the modern rationale for suicide bombing. Although the Quran forbids suicide, martyrdom is different. In fact, the only people guaranteed to go to paradise upon their death are those who kill and get killed in the cause of Allah. Martyrs are not seen as suicides because their goal is not to lose their life, but to take the lives of others in the defense of Islam. That's why they're seen as heroes by radical Muslims. Mothers and fathers don't actually weep for their children. They rejoice because martyrdom is the only assurance of salvation, of paradise in the Quran. Remember, I'm not bashing, I'm just telling you the facts. Islam is a religion of works. You hope at the end of the day, at judgment day comes, your good outweighs your bad. It better be 51% minimum. There's no savior in Islam, which means you do whatever it takes to get yourself to heaven. It is a, it's a deadly deception. All religion is, and it fuels a culture of death. So when a Palestinian kid grows up in extreme poverty without education, he sees his brother or his friend blow himself up and attempt to kill the Israeli infidel, he thinks, this is my destiny. I want to go to paradise. I'll die in jihad too. The Quran states, you shall rejoice in making such an exchange. This is the greatest triumph. That's how the Quran defies victory. Saddam Hussein was the first Muslim leader to begin the practice of actually paying suicide bombers. He gave $25,000 to every family who sacrificed a child in the intifada against Israel. He'd actually pay for the funeral, host an after party, because the Quran said that little boy or girl was in paradise. And the Muslim concept of paradise is very different from the Christian idea of heaven. Someone, someone said that. What's the, what's the Muslim paradise like, the, the heaven? And in, in, in our heaven... We say, it's, it's better than you can even imagine on earth. We see God face to face. We have fellowship with him. We know him personally. We share in the love and fellowship of Father and Son and, and Holy Spirit. It's beyond imagining. But the Islamic paradise is much more carnal and sensual. You never actually see Allah face to face. He doesn't want to know you. But 72 voluptuous virgins do. That's what the 9-11 hijackers were anticipating when they flew their plane into the tower. Friends, heaven is not a brothel. That is not God's dream. It may be man's dream, it's not God's dream. If you have a daughter, would you want to take her to that heaven? So let me be very clear here. There is profound evil at work in the world. There is darkness, there are lies, there's, there's deceit. It's not Islam. It's man-made religion. The lie that we can work our way to God by human means. The lie that says, you've got to spill your blood so God will accept you. That's a culture of death. Only Christianity says, Jesus' blood was spilled once and for all, so all might live. 
with Jesus' blood, not your own made peace with God. And now you have peace with each other. Satan has been using the mask of organized religion to blind people and consign generations to hell since the beginning. And it's spiritual blindness that keeps Ishmael and Isaac locked in their deadly struggle. So how do we respond to this? How do you respond? Because there's so much here right now even just to nauseate or frighten you. And I'm actually worried you're just going to kind of shut your eyes and close your heart down, quite honestly. Folks, let me, let me, let this be a moment to rally our faith and realize there's something bigger at stake here. Ephesians 6 reminds us, for our struggle, our jihad, is not against what? Flesh and blood. Other humans are not the enemy. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Translation, Muslims are not the enemy. Islam is not the problem. Satan is the problem. He is the enemy of all humanity. He does not discriminate. He doesn't care. He wants to take everybody. The Bible calls him the father of lies. And as Christians, our first response is to realize we're not at war with our fellow man, whether Jew or Muslim or conservative or liberal. Politics is not the issue. That's why politics doesn't work to solve the problem. The problem of Islamic terror is first and foremost a spiritual issue. So the point is not to wave flags and take sides with Isaac or Ishmael. The point is, put yourself in the position of your enemy so you can understand how to love and liberate them in Christ. It's neither confrontation nor accommodation, but proclamation of the gospel that set captive people free. That's what will heal the Middle East. That When the Prince of Peace, Jesus the Christ, can do that. He does it through us. And the disciples, as his disciples, we're part of this. We're breaking the kingdom of God in, the kingdom of peace, of shalom. The first thing we have to realize is that there's fear on both sides. Can we just acknowledge that? Just, I'll be honest. As Americans, we see everything through the lens of 9-11. My wife was in the city. I, it colors everything I see. Terror threats. Have you stopped to consider, though, that many Muslims are actually afraid of us? In 2003, Time Magazine ran a cover article asking the question, should Christians convert Muslims, and the cover featured a clenched fist holding a metal cross, kind of resembling actually a crusader's sword. Victory! What do you think that fist is saying to them? What is that saying? Convert or else. To most Muslims, the cross is actually a military symbol. It's, it's a reminder of the crusades. Now check out the back cover of Time magazine. Same issue. A female in fishnet stockings Selling cigarettes. Pleasure to burn. So sex used to kind of peddle vices. Those two images capture what a lot of Muslims fear most about the West. We're powerful and we're licentious. And they, they look at that and they say, we know what America's out to do. They want to dominate us militarily, religiously, and culturally. They don't want Western Christianity. In their mind, the Christian West is decadent, exploits women, and abuses its power to expand its empire. And you know what? Sometimes they're right. Remember, we're Christians first, Americans second. And at the end of the day, our citizenship is in another country, a heavenly one, Scripture says, where we are told that every tribe, every tongue, and every nation will be part of the family of God. So we have to be careful we don't play into Muslim stereotypes by wrapping the gospel in red, white, and blue. The kingdom Jesus preached about is not to convert people to the kingdom of America. It's to convert them to the kingdom of Jesus Christ, where the cross is not a symbol of military might, but actually of the grace of God. We have to be clear to make that distinction. It is the only way to dispel the fear. 
and extend true love to those who call themselves our enemies. The Bible says there's no fear in love. But perfect love, what? Drives out fear. The Christian God is love. He's called us to love one another and to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. So here's my closing question. Just brace yourself and, and wait for it. Here's my closing question. Have you prayed for Osama bin Laden today? Just, I realize that may turn your stomach. Some of you just had a little, you threw up a little in your mouth. On an emotional level, you may recoil at the idea of praying for a murderer. But the gospel truth, the gospel truth is that Jesus Christ died for Osama bin Laden and every militant Muslim terrorist just as he died for you and for me. In fact, it's just for such sinners and madmen who wreak havoc in our world that Christ died. You remember he said, those who are well have no need of a doctor, but those who are sick. So if you have a hard time hoping and praying that Osama bin Laden and Mahmoud Ahmadinejad will be saved, will become your brothers in Christ, then you need to remember that you were once the enemy of God. You were the enemy of God. I was his enemy. Until Christ reached out his hand and said, Peace! To you, peace. I'm drawing all men to me, to my Father, to my sacrifice, to my blood. And you're the first. I want you to proclaim it to the nations. Colossians 1 says, Once you were alienated from God and were what? Enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now, God has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death, his death, to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, blemish and free from, from accusation. Folks, that's the hope of the gospel. The gospel says there's, there's a force in this world that is greater than fear, greater than hostility, that can reconcile both Isaac and Ishmael together to their heavenly father. Do not mishear me. Yes, we need to protect ourselves from our enemies. Don't be an idiot. But more than that, we need to pray our enemies will be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. Amen? Next week, you are going to hear news that will blow your mind if today hasn't already baked your potato. Stop. I had the privilege on Wednesday of an in-depth interview with Lazarus Yegnazar, the Iranian evangelist you heard from earlier. And uh, he's an incredible Christian man. He has a deep love for the Muslim people. And next Sunday, Lazarus is going to tell us about the underground revolution taking place in Iran that we don't see in the news, that right now a giant spiritual awakening in the Muslim world is underway. It is a movement of God to hear him describe it. It is demolishing strongholds. It is setting captive people free without using bombs or Brittany. And over dinner, he shared a fact that took my breath away. He said, Tim, you don't understand this. No one, no one knows it. They don't print this in the Times more Muslims have come to Christ in the last 30 years than in the last 13 centuries combined. Do you know why? Do you know what draws people to the cross of Christ like nothing else? Persecution. Suffering. It's been said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the Christian church. And as the grip of radical Islam squeezes more and more tightly in the Middle East, young Muslims are seeking out Christ, grace, forgiveness in unparalleled numbers. And he said, my only question, Tim, is will the American church be ready? I said, I'm, what do you mean? He said, will you view the Muslim world 
as your enemy or an opportunity? Lazarus is a man who has experienced jihad firsthand, and I want to end our time today by giving him the final word. Now, how do we have a jihad? I think we have a jihad. Jesus was the first jihadist. Why are we baffled about it? He says, nobody is worth to be my disciple unless you take your cross and follow me. Unless you deny yourself. This is the biggest of jihad, I tell my Muslim friends. So we have the utmost of jihad. Jihad is denial. Not to kill others, as yes. the crusaders did, yes. but as a self-sacrifice. He died on the cross. He didn't kill anyone. When he was tempted, he says, if you are the son of God, bring throngs of angels and kill everyone. He was asked to do exactly as jihadists and suicide bombers will do. He says, no, I'd rather die to save you. And this is a true Christian message. Next week, you'll hear the full story from Lazarus about what God's Spirit is doing in Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, the rest of the Farsi-speaking world. More Muslims have come to Christ in the last 30 years than the past 13 centuries combined. The question is, will the church in America be ready? Or will we view Muslims as the enemy or say, what an opportunity to see a real jihad, a spiritual revolution of love and grace in the name of Jesus Christ? Don't miss this, guys. I want you to get a complete picture. Last week we learned the facts. Today we have confronted some fears and terrible truths. But next week you will see what true hope looks like. I want to pray for us and for our enemies too. Lord Jesus, I thank you just right now for the hope of the gospel, God. What a, what a powerful truth that changed the world. While we were yet sinners, you loved me and you died for me and for every person in this room. Father, I pray for every man and woman here right now, listening online at the sound of my voice. I ask for your Holy Spirit right now to testify to your truth. Speak to them peace. Do only what you can do in a troubled time. Father, we ask for your blessing and your power to fall on our enemies. I don't even know how to pray this, but I just ask that you would bless I ask that you would bless Osama bin Laden. Even when our hearts don't feel that, we pray in obedience as you taught us. We're your people. We want to love our enemies and see them liberated. Lord, I just pray for hundreds of thousands of men and women and little boys and girls around the world who are living in darkness and despair. Would you just show us, show us how to be the answer to their prayer. Jesus, we just declare you are Lord over all nations. And you don't want any to perish, but all to come to repentance. May your word be our dream in the powerful and mighty name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said together, Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to Liquid Church Audio. If this message has touched you, we'd love to know how. Just email Pastor Dave Adamson at churchonline at liquidchurch.com. For more information and content, or to connect with our worldwide Liquid Church community, log on to liquidchurchonline.com.